So what we're going to do is we're going to turn to 2 Samuel 23, which was our text Sunday. And I hate to repeat a message, but I tell you what, when I was editing this last one and I looked and I saw 47 minutes, I realized I had an hour hour to go. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, really what has happened is I thought it was just too good to pass over in one Sunday and not come back to it. 2 Samuel 23, you'll see a title that says David's Mighty Men around the 8th verse. Now here's the thing. Sunday we looked at what the mighty men did, who they were, uh, how they related to people in the Bible like John the Baptist and Paul, and basically why you might want to emulate them. What I want to get across tonight is we'll recap real quickly what they did, what their names meant, and why they did what they did. But more than that, here's, here's kind of the punchline of the sermon given to you right up front so that there's no chance any of us will miss it. All three of these mighty men are found in you, in every single Christian. And if there was one thing in listening to Sunday's message that I didn't feel like I did an adequate job of, was making each one of us understand that we don't need to strive sometimes to be one of the mighty men, another time to be one of the others. At all times, all three of these characteristics are present in us. And that will get clearer as we go. Starting in 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tekamite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hands grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. These three men we covered Sunday, and I'll remind you about again, all did something special. The first one, Josheb. He stood in an impossible situation. There were 800 men that faced him. And this guy looked at the impossible situation and decided that it was possible because God was with him. We're going to come back to that. The second guy, Eleazar, he stood in a situation where everybody around him ran. They retreated. And he decided to stand his ground because God was with him. The third one was standing in a field that was different than the others. It was full of uh, lentils. And uh, in another place, the same event's recorded, and it says barley. So I don't know which it is, but in both cases, it's food. And he decided that he was willing to risk his life to feed his people. So he refused to be intimidated, to back down, or to give up. And he pressed in until he killed 300 men and defended the field. Uh, so why on earth is all of this in the Word? It's in the Word because these were three special men and one of the things that we're going to get into soon, not tonight, is the inner circle. Because I believe what is happening in our church is there are several stages that you have in a church. The outer ring, if you will, is the crowd. That's just anybody who happens to be in a church. If you could come in 
in concentric rings inside of that, the next step in that would be the congregation. If you could come in yet further towards the bullseye in the center, you would find the core. And then if you could get to the very closest, right around the leaders in the church, what you find is the inner circle. And it's important that people move from the crowd to the congregation to the core to the inner circle. The inner circle has no limit for size. It has, but where, how you move from one to the other is when you stop being just a spectator. That's the, the crowd. You move to be a useful member in the church, participating wherever you realize you should participate. That's how you become a member of the congregation. To the core, the core are the group of people that know what their calling is and are attempting to perform it within the church. Then from the core, when you get to the uh, inner circle, the inner circle are the people that are actually performing their calling as a part of the church. They're not just developing it. They're not just realizing what it is and trying it. That is their calling in the church. And uh, that can be everybody from the guy that picks up the offering to the guy that directs parking. Uh, hopefully we'll have that problem one day. To the guy that's preaching. Having said all of that, these three men show us what Christians are supposed to be. So that's, that's what we're going to look at. Josheb, we've covered Sunday, his name, does anybody remember what his name meant? It means sitting in the council. His name means I sit in the council. And, you know, just in context, it's the council of God. This guy was a lover of God. One of the things that I found out studying today between phone calls and everything else that happened was council. There's two, two words that we pronounce council. I mean, I've known this before, but I just didn't think it all the way through. One is when you give advice to somebody. That's counsel. That's spelled with an S. It ends in S-E-L. Another is an actual collection of people that are considered to be advisors. See, if you give advice, you're a counselor. But if you sit on one of these boards that is a council, then you're a councilman. Do you understand the difference? It's hard to do this without you know, having a blackboard or something up. This guy didn't sit in the council advice of God. He sat on the board of directors with God. He sat in the council. He was a councilman, not a counselor. Y'all following me? Why on earth is that important? Well, that's kind of we're going to start with him and move our way through. The reason the guy was able to look at an impossible task and see it as possible is because he was a part of the decision with God to take it. And since he heard what God was saying, he believed that it could be done. In fact, what you'll find out on this idea of counsel is that God has a counsel room. Now, when we think of the heavenlies, we think of a third and, and highest heaven. Uh, you might think, if you're concentrating on the book of Revelation, of a throne with some elders and a sea of glass and cherubim and seraphim. Uh, if you're really not very advanced in the Word and have just hung around nominal Christians all of your life, you think of you know clouds and harps and... St. Peter and Gates and all. But what we rarely think of, regardless, is that there is a council room in heaven. Not just the Godhead. We, we know that the Godhead that we talk about is made up of uh, three figures that act as one unit, just like you are three parts that act as one unit. But outside of just the Godhead, there is a council room. So we're going to look at that real quick. In Job 15... You already know all of this? I mean, you 
intimately familiar with God's counsel. Name all the members. You vote them in, vote them out. Your, your board of deacons oversees God's counsel. Talk to them on smoke break. In uh, Job 15, you hear this, this, uh, this almost criticism. Uh, this is Eliphaz, uh, and he's re- replying to Job. And, you know, without getting into all the intricacies of Job, Job's friends were hard on him, and Job was hard on them. And most of the time they were wrong. Uh, a few times they seemed to have some really good points. Job was wrong a lot, and a few times he had good points. And the whole point of this book of Job is God has the right to do with you whatever he wants to do for his glory, whether that's suffering or whether that's blessing. And Job had his share of both in his life. It was for God's glory. And we don't have a right to balk and kick at that. Joyce Meyer, I think, is the one that said it. I'm not sure because I don't hear her much, but Brad Lively quoted it to me. He said, you know, Christians today want to wear the the crown of blessing. They want to wear the crown of glory, but they will not wear the crown of thorns. Uh, The whole book of Job is to teach you that everything that comes into your life is to work for a blessing, you know? Uh, All right. Having said that, this guy Eliphaz in verse 7 of chapter 15 says, Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? How's that spelled? See, he's not saying, do you listen in on God's advice? He's saying, do you have a seat in God's counsel room? Are you one of the, the guys that he confers with? That's, that's what he's asking. If you flip over to Psalm 89, we'll see it not put in such a negative sense. In Psalm 89, verse 7, well, we may back up further than that, uh, verse one, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Get this. There are heavenly beings. There are beings in the heavenly that surround God. They're called an assembly of the holy ones. You begin to get this thought that there's even a bureaucracy and some establishment of order there in the heavenlies surrounding God. And what is he telling you? Amongst all of them, God's the greatest and he's feared. With that thought in mind, look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23 See, the bottom line is in the third heaven, there is a council that takes place. Just like in a church I described rings within rings, in the heavenlies, there is an order of ways that things happen. This guy, Joshab, 
name meant somebody who sits in the council. He understood that he held a special place as a citizen of Israel. His mother named him something that he would become, which is somebody who sits on the very board that God meets with. He esteemed himself as somebody that God esteemed. This caused his actions to be a certain way. See, this idea that, well, what is man that you're mindful of him? See, that David said, that if you only looked at that, it's out of balance. What is man that you're mindful of him? Well, the fact is, God is mindful of man. God is very aware of what is going on in man's life. Later in the, that same song, it says that. This guy understood that his battle was something that God was involved in because he was attached to God. Does that make sense to you all? So when he looked at it, this is the same spirit that David had. All of Israel stood around seeing themselves as regular Israelites. All of them stood around just looking at their own natural abilities day after day while a nine-foot giant that had a spear like a weaver's rod that had a head on it that weighed 120 pounds, who had armor that weighed more than most people's bodies, stood out there and defied God. But what was David's response? Who's this guy to defy the armies of the living God? He didn't see these guys as regular Israelites. He saw them as the armies of God because they had a special relationship. Well, Josheb, when he's facing 800 men, doesn't see himself as facing 800 men. He sees himself as a member of God's council, which is what his name means, facing 800 men. He was not alone. When you begin to get that perspective, problems don't seem so big. It's not your problem alone anymore. And it's not your problem to get Matt to help you share. And it's not your problem to get Suzette to help you share. It's your problem as a councilman in God's council room. See, you're not alone. All of the other people that are called towards heavenly things are there with you, but most importantly, the board of directors is there to help you because you're on the counsel of God. With that in mind, Jeremiah says this about prophets who uh, speak under their own imagination. And you can learn from, from what he says the way that it's supposed to be. In Jeremiah 23, verse 18, uh, verse 17, Verse 16, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord? Get this, which of them has stood in in the boardroom of Yahweh to see or hear His Word. Who has listened and heard His Word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He fully accomplishes the purposes of His heart. In the days to come, you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. 
You could focus on what the wicked prophet didn't do. But what I would rather do is focus on the second statement he made, which is, if he had stood in my counsel, then he would have borne my words and they would have produced the effect that I wanted. See, when you're standing in a position and you're attacked, whether it's 800 men or one man assaulting God verbally, and you as his ambassador are standing there as his councilman, if you stand in the council and you hear God's word, it has great effect. That's how one man beats 800 men. You'll never convince me that Joshua was just stronger than all 800. How could that be? How could it be just stronger than... And he's not like Samson. You don't read about this guy picking up city gates and carrying them, knocking down an entire temple the day gone. You don't see that kind of stuff. You see acts of valor. You see a confidence that we studied the week before that comes from knowing who he is in God because he sat in on the counsel of God. Well, let me ask you something. As Christians, do we sit in on the counsel of God? Of course we do. Let's look at Zechariah 3 real quick. It's about Joshua. To get to Zechariah 3, you can hang a right from where you're at. The book of Zechariah is one of my favorites because even when he's speaking to natural people in his day, speaking about a high priest named Joshua who lived in his day, you can see that it's also prophetic and it is clear as day on this side of the prophecy what he's talking about. Joshua, I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Isn't that interesting? You've got both these guys standing before the Lord, right? You've got Joshua and then Satan. And it says Satan's on the right side, correct? If you stand in a courtroom today, you put your back to the judge so that you are in view of the judge and look at the two tables. Next time you watch court TV, look at that. See which side is the defense counsel and which side is the attacking party, the accuser. It's the left and the right. Just like this setting. We have a courtroom setting going on here. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Ephesians 4 verse 9 speaks about Jesus being snatched from the fire. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I've taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Now we know Jesus didn't have sin, but the Bible says he who had no sin was made to be sin for you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks about Jesus being clothed and us longing to be clothed with a heavenly dwelling. While the angel of the Lord stood by, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. It goes on to speak some other things, but get this picture. The requirement is you have to walk in my ways, you have to keep my requirements, and then you will get to govern all of my house as one who has a place among these standing here. There's a crowd. This is speaking about Jesus, and this is how 
You begin to understand scriptures that say he was elevated beyond his companions. Jesus had a heavenly spot. In fact, he was the Word of God. But because of his obedience on earth, the man, Jesus, was elevated to a place that was higher than all of the other heavenly beings. In fact, the Word declares that he is God. But this is in the council room. And you know who else stands in the council room? We do. No, Satan does not. He's been thrown out. But, yeah, we stand in the council room. Zechariah 3.7 speaks of a council room. Job 15.8 calls into question the existence of a council room. Psalm 89 speaks about the council of the holy ones, the assemblies of the righteous. Jeremiah 23 tells us that false prophets don't stand in the council of God, but real prophets do stand in the council of God. Well, Hebrews 1.9, turn to the New Testament. On that same note with Zechariah 3, also speaks of this council. Hebrews 1.9 is a quote from Psalm 45, but we'll just read it in Hebrews. 1.8. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Jesus had companions and he was set above all of his companions. I say all this because I want you to get this picture. And we're not going to read about Melchizedek tonight, but you remember Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek? You can't have an order if you only have one. An order is a collection of things. For something to be ordered, there has to be more than one. You can't put one in order, but you could put two in order. You understand? You could put three in order. Order speaks of a bunch of things. Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, there is a council room in the heavenlies. It is structured according to authorities. And in the council room, Jesus has the highest place. And then there are other heavenly beings. All of this in light of Josheb being in the council room. Now, having said all of that, let's go to Ephesians and see why I'm saying these things. Sorry y'all are having to turn so much. If you just memorize your Bibles, you wouldn't have to. Like Brother P. Rowe over there. I'm sorry. I just learned to say the word facetious, so I was looking for the opportunity to say I was being facetious. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by His grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Y'all know the rest of the verse. I quote it constantly. Jesus was raised to the highest place among his companions, but not just he alone. Those of us that are in Christ are also said to be with him. That's in the council room, in the highest place. Like Josheb, when you face overwhelming impossible odds, all you have to do is remember the seat to which you have risen in Christ. 
Do you think for a moment that any of the adversity that you face in your life could creep its way into Mount Zion, into the heavenly council room, and overcome you while seated there? Not at all. I mean, look, I've got children, right? And they are under my authority. But you could have a council room in the Stevens household. This would be all the members of the Stevens household brought together collectively to discuss something, a family issue, right? You might be able to mistreat my son if he were outside of that council room and I were not around. But I assure you, you won't mistreat my son with me there and him in the council room. If you remember where you are called and the high station that you have in Christ, you will not see your problems as overwhelming to you. You'll see your high status in Christ Jesus as overwhelming to the problem. See, if you were having dinner with the president tonight, how worried would you be about a traffic ticket here in Houston? Probably not all that worried, right? Well, I mean, this is that kind of, of situation. That's how somebody like Jashub looks at 800 men and says, come on, bring it on. I know who I am in Christ, so I'm going to stomp on you. And uh, by the way, if you can scrape together another one, I'll take 801. If you can find nine more, let's go ahead and do 810. It'll be a bigger miracle. We need to have that aggressive attitude that says, it doesn't matter how big this obstacle is. It's just going to be a bigger miracle. We looked at Mark 9. We looked at all of those scriptures that say, nothing is impossible if we only believe. Now you would think, believe that Jesus can cause me to do this. You would think, believe that Jesus will help me. If you just believe who you are in Christ, you can do anything. Anything. The message is not about being like Jashab. It's about Jashab being in you. See, you don't need to learn to imitate Jashab's behavior. In fact, if you find out more about Jashab's behavior, and we don't, we don't know very much, you might find out he screwed up a lot. Just like me, just like some of you. <laughs> What you need to learn is that what Jashab had and possessed, you have and possess, but in a greater, more full measure. And it's not just Jashab. Who was the next guy? Eleazar. And what did he do? He stood when everybody else retreated. He refused to retreat. Do you know how many times the Bible tells you to persevere or endure? And you know, that's not the word I would use to describe the church persevering and enduring. Weak, lazy, fat, whining, all of those come to mind, but not persevering and enduring. You know, we don't know what it is to suffer. Let's talk about persevering and enduring. Find some Christians in the Sudan. Find some Christians in China. They'll tell you about persevering and enduring. Find Messianic Christians in Jerusalem. They'll tell you about persevering and enduring. You know, we don't even have an idea what that is, but do you know how you, you persevere and endure? First off, you have to be willing to do what Joseph did, which is face the impossible task. There's nothing to persevere and endure if you run from everything. But if you'll face it, number one, you have the opportunity. Now, number two, here's how you do it. You do it just like Eleazar did. His mama named him something she wanted him to be. Names were prophetic. That's why I've named my kids what I have. Even when we don't mean to, sometimes it's prophetic. Make you wonder about Nabal's mom, huh? Hey, I think I'll name my kid fool. <laughs> and he was. He was a fool. 
this guy Eleazar's name doesn't mean God is my help. I said that Sunday, but that's, that's not quite right. It doesn't mean, God, I want you to help. It's simply two words. God, help. It's two words. We, we fill in all the rest to try to make it sense. He had a, a, a grasp of two things. Okay, this is what you can learn from this. Eleazar firmly understood two things. There is a God, and he was his help. So it didn't matter whether everybody else ran. If Elliot and I have decided to take our stand, he and I on this side of the room, and we look over and say, my God, Piro is an animal. He's going to hurt us. And if he doesn't, David is. And if David can't do it, then Mandy is going to back clean up. And we say, wow, this are overwhelming odds. We can stand in the shoes of Jesheb and say, well, this is not an impossible task because we stand in the counsel of God or we can run. But let's assume we do what Jesheb did. We're going to stand. Now we have to move into Eleazar's shoes. Go, wow, we don't have quite what it takes to get this done though. There's a God and He helps. We're going to trust in that so that even if everybody else runs, I'm going to stand still. And what did God provide you with as help in your troubles? What one thing is sitting in all of your laps that God gave us in our generation in a language that you can read at the cost of other men's lives for your help? It's not just that we can sing. It's not just that we prophesy. It's not just that we have feel-good services. God gave you something in this generation at this time that others died to give you, to get you through the impossible situations when everybody else is retreating and running, and it is the Word. And Eleazar, who understood God was his help, clung to it to the point where his hands cramped around it as if they were frozen to the surface. I've been to Israel. Rarely could you ever have a hand freeze to a sword because of temperatures. You know? I was there in 98, and they said it was the first time in 100 years in the month of April it snowed in Jerusalem. So we're talking about it's rare that you have that kind of cold weather. So we're not talking about his hand freezing because the skin stuck to the sword. We're talking about a man that was so determined that when his hand started to cramp, and what would you do if your hand was cramping? You let it go, stretch out your fingers, you know, uh, go take a nice warm bath, drink a latte, and then come back. This guy refused to let go of what God gave him as his help, which happened to be a sword. And that's how we need to look at the Word of God. When you're facing something, you say, well, I don't feel like this or I don't want to do that. We need to cling to what God gave us like it were a sword saving our life. I will do the Word of God. I was repenting with Piro today. Not with Piro as if he were repenting. I was repenting to Matthew today. That's not something that feels good. It's not something you wake up and you say, hey, I think I'm just... I would like to go humble myself today. But I know that when the enemy is attacking... And he is because we're called of God. He and I, like a right and left hand, called of God to do a work. When you're called of God, the enemy is looking for a chance to get you to retreat, to overwhelm you, to make you feel like the task is impossible. And the one thing that I can cling to, if everybody else runs away, is the Word of God. So I'm going to do what it says to do. And if it says, go repent, then I go repent. How many pastors start a message by saying, I need to repent about my behavior towards work? I've been grumbling. But the Word of God says, don't go to the altar and pray to God. If you have a problem with your brother, go to the brother first. I got it right with me as far as I could first. That's what you do. Now, I don't want you to have the idea Matt and I had some separation. We don't. That's not it at all. 
But if you don't ever let there be even a pebble between you, there's no chance a mountain's going to slide in. And that's a, that's a principle I live by. I would rather deal with what's said than what goes unsaid and is allowed to grow. I don't mean that sexist, but I want you ladies to understand that. It's a problem that most women have. Guys tend to get mad and get it right off their chest, and women brood with it until it's bigger than it is. Now, sometimes those roles are reversed. I understand. Don't do it. The moment a seed hits you, kill it while it's a seed. It's a whole lot easier than cutting down an oak tree or some other uh, acacia tree. Yes, a shittim tree. We were talking about Eleazar before I got into Hebrew pronunciations of words. Eleazar's name means God is my help. Let me ask you something. If that was true for Eleazar, God help, that's his name, do you think it's true of the church? Let's look at Psalm 37. We're going to end here soon. I know it's late. We worshiped a long time and that was good. Uh, We won't do all three guys tonight. We'll do two. I'll do a third another time. In Psalm 37, have you called this book Psalms most of your life? I have. I realized today when I was trying to spell it, and spelling's not my forte. I mean, I love this computer age because you rarely have to spell anything right. But I realized, I mean, because of spell check, I realized today that Psalms, Psalm has no S on it. They are Psalms, but the book is called, well, I guess the book is called Psalms. But each... Each one, each chapter is a psalm. Anyway, when I write it, I always write psalms, and that's it's not Psalms 37, it's Psalm 37. Y'all don't care, and I don't either, but I'm, I'm rambling. Yeah, and I, I, anyway. Okay, Psalm 37, verse somewhere, uh, 37. Psalm 37, 37. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in them. The Lord does what for them? Helps them. He saves them. He's their refuge. But it says He helps us. Psalm 37 teaches us that God is there for the righteous. Isaiah 50. Hang a right. Go to Isaiah. Now, I know this is not a huge revelation that God helps you, but it'd be a huge step in your walk if you acted like He helped you. Dear God, the world's come to an end. I got an unexpected bill. Oh, that sounds like a councilman of God that can do anything, doesn't it? Yeah, that sounds like you know God's your help, doesn't it? Mm. I got a flat tire and I don't don't know what I'm gonna do. Uh, I hope nobody in here got a flat tire or a bill today. That's not what I'm talking about. You, you understand our problems get blown out of proportion. The the Paul had this attitude. He said, you know what? Now we're talking about a guy who got beaten with rods, uh, flogged, put in stocks, uh, stripped naked. Uh, put it in prison with homosexual offenders, you know, uh, was faced daily with his concern for all of the churches, was robbed, was stoned, shipwrecked, snake-bitten. And he said, you know what? 
my light and momentary troubles, they're not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed. How does he do that? He had learned the secret. And you know what? Because he worked to learn it, he gave it to us for free. And a big part of it, a big part of that secret is knowing who you are in Christ. Because then you can endure anything for the joy that's set before you. It's how Jesus goes to the cross. He knew who he was. He knew death wasn't going to hold him down. He knew what it would accomplish. And he did it joyfully. And one of the things that distinguished him beyond all of his companions was the oil of joy. Hebrews 1.9 said it. So I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, you need to smile. If you're not smiling, I would just assume you're not a Christian. It's all right. You need to get saved. You know? So, well, I don't want to fake it. Somebody said, I don't want to feel like I'm being fake. I said, no, please, fake it. It's okay. Fake it. That's something you're allowed to do. You just be as false as you can be and smile all the time, okay? I won't hold it against you. You know? Sometimes you have to, I mean, fake it. No, you're, let's think of it this way. You are in faith causing the muscles in your mouth to form a smile believing that it will have an effect on your attitude. Let's, let's just start there. See, I'm glad there's a Sims here. These guys are so <laughs> smart. They know that kind of stuff. I don't. Uh, <laughs> uh, Isaiah 50. 50 verse 9. This is, this is just a good one-liner. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that, condemns, that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Guys, where... If Isaiah can say that, and remember Isaiah's living in a day when Sennacherib is outside the walls of his city, his king, Hezekiah, is there. They're both praying, and the guy's out there saying, hey, I'm going to make you eat hockey and drink urine. That's what he's telling them. And his officials, Hezekiah's officials, are going, hey, look, uh, you know, Sennacherib, could you not talk in our language? We don't want the people to understand. We're educated. We can speak in your language. Let's do that. And Sennacherib is publicly maligning God, maligning everything, saying, what reason do you have in hope? On what do you base your confidence? And here's Isaiah's attitude. What did he say? He said, uh, it is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. You know how you stand your ground in a field and freeze your hand to the sword when everybody else runs? When you believe that the Lord helps you and that nobody can condemn you, and that because the Lord's your help, they'll all wear out like a garment? That's how you look at overwhelming odds and win. See, each one of these mighty men of God did not become mighty for their physical attributes. They became mighty because of their understanding of God and it was displayed in their actions. This is what James is trying to teach you, Christians. He says, hey, you say you have faith and he has deeds? I'll show you my faith by my deeds. These guys were not awesome in their own right. They were awesome because of what they understood about God. Well, Eric, you're reading an awful lot into their names. That's okay. Learn from it. I mean, they obviously understood David was called to be a king and called by God or you would not stand one man against 800. You know, we're talking about the guy that typifies Christ, typifies Jesus. Now, that's awesome, right? Would you like to have been there and serve with King David? See him knock down Goliath? Would you have liked to have been there on a day when one guy kills 800 because he believes it's God? And how much more have you been honored in this generation when the king of the universe makes you a participator in his nature? You don't have to stand there with King David. You don't have to witness those events. 
the God that orchestrated the events is in you. That even makes standing in his council room seem light, doesn't it? Truthfully, his council room occurs wherever you are. He talks with you. You have complete access to the mind of Christ. His ways may be above mine. That's absolutely true. But I've got access to his ways and he can tell me about them. And he does. That's why I'm not a buffoon all of the time, just most of the time. <laughs> Hebrews 2, and we're, we're going to close right after this. It's late. It's 9.10. I turn into a pumpkin after 9.15. I say that and I'll be preaching at 9.15. Watch. That's, that's why I rarely ever lie. Oh, I'm glad. I appreciate that. I, I just love Jesus. Honestly, before we read this last scripture, here, here's the thing, however you illustrate it. I mean, we talked about this Sunday. We're talking about it now. We're going to talk about it until I die. Christians should be overcoming. Christians should be the kind of people that have a can-do attitude that say, we're going to do this. Not people that are bemoaning their circumstances and fretting constantly. If there's one enemy that I have in the faith that I refuse to give ground to, it's fear. I'm like every other human being. I get scared just like everybody else does. And we've discussed all of this a thousand times. We'll discuss it a thousand more times, I promise. Don't give in to it. You feel it just like everybody else feels it. Then you reason in your heart that God's able to perform what He's promised and you dismiss it said, but I feel like this. You're not allowed to. Stop it. You know? Oh, God. My kids hate it. You know, they hate it because they'll start, they'll start crying and shaking about something. I said, stop crying. Oh, I can't. Oh, you can. I assure you. I'm going to beat you if you don't stop. Well, they shove a fist in their mouth. They'll do whatever it takes to stop. And I said, now smile. And, you know, you can tell they don't want to smile. I said, give dad a hug. Kiss me. Tell me I'm the best daddy in the world. And before long, they're laughing and running around. You can control your emotions. Trust me, you can. But if you fail to, sin's crouching at your door, seeking to have you. Now, you say, if you fail to. Let me say it this way. When you fail to. Because all of us do. This is not a male thing, not a female thing. It's not, uh, well, this one Christian has a problem with it. No, all of us do. All of us do. Some have a problem with fear. Others have a problem with anger. Some with jealousy. You know, others with indifference. You know, they're... But emotions are a chemical part of our existence, but they do not have to control us because God has given us a spirit of self-control. Today, I felt overwhelmed by stuff all day long. Isn't it amazing that when we begin to worship, I don't anymore? What is the difference? Did the circumstances change? No. My perspective on the circumstances changed because I began to feel like I was in the counsel of God. I began to feel like God was my help. So it didn't matter whether there were 800 problems. It didn't matter whether everybody else retreated and I stood alone. That's why you flees to the Word of God. Say, God, I'm not just teaching these things because I think they're neat principles or it's fun to go through it verbally or I think it'll present well. You know, and preachers do all of that. And on occasion, I have chosen to present. I did that uh, agnosto theo in a certain way because I thought it would present well in a certain way. Boy, tricky devil that I am. I'm not doing any of that here. I just want us to begin to have overcoming attitudes. If, if there's one thing that marks us, everybody says, well, we want it to be love. Yeah, and so does everybody else, and that's a given. If you can't love, you know, go do some other religion. You're not going to work in Christianity. But given that you love, the one thing I would like us to be known for is a church that doesn't quit, a church that is overcoming. 
And you know what? I'm kind of happy about that because it's the one thing I think is perfectly within our grasp to not give up. You know? If God had asked me to go and confront John Kerry about the truths of the kingdom, I might not have the credentials for it. If he had asked me to go to the University of Houston and debate with the religious professors about theology, I might not have the credentials for it. But if all he requires of me is to do what he tells me and not give up, that I have the credentials for. You know? I can finally be stubborn and it's for a good thing. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. So much for people that don't think there's a liberal devil, huh? And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Get that. For surely it is not angels he helps, but it is Abraham's descendants. Who's that? Us. That's Abraham's descendants. We're descendant of Abraham and that we're of the faith of Abraham. You know who it is more than us? The literal descendants of Abraham that are also of the faith of Abraham. He didn't forget them. We're going to close. Uh, I think I said everything that I had to say about this. If you believe, in fact, even the scripture in Isaiah, we didn't back up far enough to read it, but he said he offered his back to those who beat him because the Lord helped him and who would condemn him. Read Isaiah 50 sometimes. Here, he shared in the flesh and blood and all of the other experiences that he had. Why? Because it's not angels God helps. It's Abraham's descendants. You are willing to endure anything if you believe God will help you through it. If, if Jesus, let's, let's just be honest. Let's take this out of the faith realm and right into the natural. If Jesus walked up, sat down, patted Elliot on the back and said, come on, Elliot, let's go do whatever. Climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Let's go see if we can leap across the Grand Canyon. Is there anything that you wouldn't try to do if you could see Jesus right there with you? Of course not. I mean, wouldn't you be looking for a chance to go walk on some water with him? Yeah. I mean, if you could see him right there with you, knowing what you know about Jesus, wouldn't you do that? Well, he says he's with you always, even to the end of the age. So what's the difference? Well, I can't see it. That's right. That's why faith is the substance of things that you can't see. And once you kind of put things in that perspective, then you can act like Jashab. You can act like Eleazar. We didn't even get to Shama. You can act like Shama, even to the point of laying down your life to feed others, just like Shama. You can be willing to do that. You just need to get out of this idea that Jesus is somewhere else far away from you. No, you're in his council room. He's in you. He is, Eleazar is the typifier of God's Holy Spirit, God's help. He's in you. You know, you couldn't be any closer. You're wrapped up to the point where like a husband and wife are one, you and Jesus are one. Right now you're betrothed. Later, you know, we'll consummate the deal in a glorified body. But it's not as if He's a long ways from us. See, if you have to climb into heaven to get a word from Him or descend down into the depths to get an answer from Him, we're already with Him, one and one. Once you realize that, 800 people is no big deal. The fact that everybody ran away from you, really not a big deal. You, you in fact, like Shama, you can pick one little area in Sugarland, Texas that is 24 by 20 and say, this is a field 
that is going to feed the people and I'll stand and defend it until the point where I lay down my life. That's, that's, you can do that in your home. That's how you have the principles of the three mighty men, the three chiefs that caused David to rise to power in you. And we're causing Jesus to rise to power by putting his enemies under our feet. 